you care to uh, turn to the New Testament, John chapter 13, we'll begin reading in verse 1. This text corresponds completely to this evening in the uh, sequence of events in Holy Week. And so we read, It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to his Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you can have no part in me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. That was why he said, Not every one of you was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. And let's pray. Lord Jesus, on the face of it, it seems so remarkable that you would play the role of the servant here at this table. You, the Lord, Master, Teacher, you would humble yourself and you would take up our filth. You'd take it upon yourself. You'd not only wash us, but you'd dry us. Father, maybe we've been in this text many times before. We're here again tonight. We ask that you would teach us more about the cross tonight, about the nature of the rejection that you faced, and what that rejection means to us. Father, we've asked that you'd prepare us well for this evening and tomorrow, 
Saturday and prepare us well for Sunday celebration as we again gather at your cross. Lord, we know that the cross is where you continue to beckon us. The cross is where you do your work in us. The cross is your office. And so we ask you to take us to the cross again tonight. For we ask it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. It's been 14 centuries since the church has recognized Lent. Lent is a time in spring, 40 days before Easter. It's been recognized as a church as a time of of new life and preparation. From the very beginning, the church has recognized Lent as a time of sacrifice. For some, they would sacrifice one meal a day or a week. For others, they'd say, no, it's not a meal that needs to be sacrificed. What needs to be sacrificed is our menu. No longer should we be able to eat fish or meat on Friday. We'll substitute it. In our day and age, it seems a little ridiculous that you'd focus on meat and eat fish instead. And yet, in the 6th century, meat was an expensive staple that always accompanied feasts. And so the church said, if you're going to sacrifice, it makes sense to sacrifice something you love, something that would bring to mind celebration, something that people would spend much time and energy preparing. Regardless of the particulars, for 14 centuries, much of the church has focused on Lent as a time of sacrifice, self-denial. And so even in our community, you can see on signage around churches, what have you given up for Lent? Or this is a time to sacrifice something. Sometimes hear people ask the question, what have you given up for Lent? Chocolate? Maybe meat? Maybe some kind of sin? And yet surprisingly, it's probably the worst question you could ask at this time of year. Because it's not our sacrifice that should be in focus. What should be in focus is the sacrifice of God himself in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus. The amazing thing is the prophet Joel understood this centuries before the coming of Christ. And as Tim has read tonight... Joel makes it clear what this sacrifice is all about. Listen again to what he says. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. It's a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. The day of the Lord is great and dreadful. Who can endure it? And before Joel can posit an answer, God speaks and says, Even now, return to me with all of your heart. With fasting and weeping and mourning, return to me. Rend your hearts rather than your garments. 
You see, the purpose of the fast is not to deny something. It's to admit something. The purpose of the fast is to admit the gravity and the price of your sin. And it's only been in recent years that I've come to understand that Joel is not speaking about some day that is coming in the future. He is speaking of a time that will come in the future, but primarily he's speaking about a time that's already come. The day of deep darkness and gloom. The day of clouds and blackness. The day of the Lord's judgment, which is dreadful. Who can endure it? That day has come. He's not talking about primarily talking about the future. He's talking about the cross. He's talking about his future, but not ours. You see, the purpose of the cross is never to focus on your sacrifice. It's always to focus on his. And nowhere is that clearer than in Jesus' preparation for the cross. John tells us in chapter 13 that while they're around table, Jesus gets up, takes off his garments, puts on a towel, and stoops and washes their feet. You know, it's an interesting thing that John begins the ministry of Jesus Christ with dinner, and he ends the presentation of Jesus' earthly ministry with a dinner. In fact, John spoke more about Jesus eating dinners and food than any other gospel writer. And it's interesting, John tells us that just a week earlier, Jesus had been at a dinner party in Bethany, two miles from Jerusalem. And there at that party, a woman named Mary knelt down and anointed his feet. Here, in less than a week, Jesus is at another dinner party. It's not a woman who kneels and washes feet. Rather, it's Jesus. And it's not Jesus' feet that he washes. It's his disciples' feet. Now, in Jesus' day, to wash your feet, to wash the feet of your guests, was appropriate. It was a custom. It's like taking the coats from your guests when they come into your house for a party. That's appropriate. That's customary. But John makes it clear that Jesus doesn't wash his disciples' feet because of a custom. He tells us in verse 3 why Jesus does that. Listen to what he says. Jesus, knowing all things, lays aside his outer garments, takes up a towel and a basin, stoops down, and washes his disciples' feet. See, it's not the custom of the day that makes him wash their feet. It's what he knows that's coming. It's his knowledge of what's coming that makes him wash their feet. And what is it that's coming? What is it that's caused him to get up from this table, take off his outer garments, take a towel and wrap it around his waist, and kneel down and wash their feet? What is it? It's his knowledge of what is going to happen, which is summed up in one word, rejection. 
He gets up from that table that night because he knows he's about to be rejected. First of all, I want you to notice his motive in verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that his time had come for him to leave this world and go to his Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Now, that's how the NIV translates it, but that's not very consistent with the original text. Let me tell you how the original text, the Greek text, translates it. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The word John uses there is the word telos, which means end, the uttermost. It's the word we derive the word telescope from. Jesus, knowing the end, loves them to the end. And that begs the question, the end of what? What end does Jesus love them to? That's a question that theologians for centuries have asked. Martin Luther asked it. Martin Bucher asked it. But of all of the theologians that asked the question and answered it, nobody answered it more profoundly or more clearly than Jonathan Edwards. Listen to what he says. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ had a clear view of the end to which he had been destined. In the garden, he peered widely into the furnace of his father's wrath, into which he would soon be cast. He was brought to the mouth of that furnace so that he could look into it and there see two things that would render his love extraordinary. First, he saw the full extent of his suffering at the hands of his father. Second, he saw the full extent of the wickedness that he would take from us and place on himself. You see, it's in the garden that Jesus surrenders to the rejection of his father. But here in the upper room, he gives his disciples a portrait of what he will face. You know, when most people preach the cross or teach about the cross, and they bring up the matter of rejection, they do what Mel Gibson did in that movie, Passion of the Christ. They focus on his rejection and his suffering at the hands of men. They focus on his physical suffering. They say that's the heart of his rejection. Mel Gibson put together a movie over two hours, and at least two hours of it was the violence that Jesus endured at the hands of men. And yet when John and the other gospel writers and then the apostles after the resurrection speak of the rejection of Jesus, they do speak of the rejection of men. But principally, the rejection that they focus on is the rejection of his own father. In the Middle Ages, when artists wanted to capture Jesus suffering on the cross, you know how they painted him? 
They painted him as a, a man with a normal body, but when they came to the face, they make, made it look gruesome. It didn't even look human. You go back and you look at some of those paintings from the Middle Ages, and they'll make Jesus look like a witch. They'll make him look ghoulish. Why? Because they recognized, those painters did, in the Middle Ages, the greatest rejection Jesus faced on the cross was not from men. It was from his own Father. That's what he's showing us here. When he leaves the table, when he leaves his place at the table, and he stoops down and takes off his outer garment and wraps a towel around his waist, what he's showing them is that he will love them to the end of all the wrath that his father can dish out. Then second, notice the model. Verses 2, 4, and 5. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas to deny him, or betray him. So Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and began to wash his disciples' feet. Now notice that every one of those disciples is still there when he washes their feet. Judas doesn't leave until verse 30. By the time Jesus gets to Peter, it's pretty clear that he's washed nearly all of the other disciples' feet and most likely Judas' feet. And the message there is there's no distinction. Why is there no distinction? Because every one of them will betray him. Have you ever thought of this? From the moment Jesus leaves heaven, he girds himself with flesh. From the moment he leaves his glory in heaven, the second person of the Trinity girds himself with everything necessary to cleanse his people. They provide him no assistance. He has everything he needs to clean them. He doesn't need any help. They can't give any help. He not only washes their feet, he also dries them. It's a thorough cleansing. They will run from the cross. They will doubt everything he says. They will doubt everything he's done. And yet he will love them all the way to the end of their betrayal. He will love them all the way to the end of their unworthiness. He will love them all the way to the end of their doubting. He will love them all the way to the end of their need. And as Pogo would say, them is us. Then third, notice the meaning of what Jesus does here. Verses 7 and 8. Jesus replied, You do not realize what I'm doing, but later you will understand, unless I wash you, you can have no part in me. In 1941, a Scottish scholar and preacher wrote a book in which he said, The central problem of the Christian church is not attendance, it's not tithing, it's the substitution of views for news. He said the principal problem with the church in 1941 
And if it was true in 41, it's true in 14. The principal problem in the church is the substitution of the views of men and women for the good news of Jesus Christ. And chief among those views is the view that loving a loving God means that he's tolerant. You hear that all the time. If God is love, then he must forgive. If God is love, then he's tolerant. He overlooks sin. If God is love, then we have nothing to worry about. You hear that all the time, and yet when you look at the cross with any degree of clarity, you see that that's crazy. Jesus doesn't come to point us in the right direction. Jesus doesn't come to affirm our feelings. Jesus doesn't come to pander to our passions. Jesus comes to be rejected by his Father because of you and me. And you see that from the start. When he comes into this world, there's no room for him in the end. He's rejected. Before age two, his parents have to take him to Egypt because a king wants to kill him. He's rejected. When he begins his ministry, his cousin John sees him from a distance and calls out in a loud voice, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let me ask you a question. In human history, is there any lamb that's ever taken away any sin that hasn't had to be rejected in order to do it? You see, when Jesus lays aside his outer garments, he is showing them again exactly why he came. He came to be rejected so that you and I might be accepted. And then fourth, notice the mandate. Look at verse 14. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Do you see what he's saying? Someone once wrote that the sign of being a son of Abraham is that you're circumcised. A sign that you're a son or daughter of Moses is that you keep the law, especially the Sabbath. But the sign that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ is that you love one another. They will know you're my disciples by your love one for another. That begs the question how do we love? How is that possible? How can we possibly love somebody else the way Jesus loves us? And you know what? There's only one place to get the answer. That's the cross. I want you to notice something obvious, but it's easy to miss. Jesus doesn't give this commandment before he washes their feet. He gives it after he washes their feet. It's only after he's done for them everything that he intends to do on the cross, something that they could never do for themselves, that he says to them, wash one another's feet. 
And again, you hear this all the time in church and out of church. I, I just want to follow Jesus' example. And yet when Jesus ever speaks of following an example, He always talks the same way. Take up your cross and follow Me. Jesus said, if anyone would follow Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow Me. Why does He say that? Why does He say, if you want to follow Me, deny yourself, reject yourself by yourself, and take up your cross? Why does He say it? He says it because he knows that the only way in which we can ever follow his example is if we remember his rejection and keep it in mind. The full extent of his rejection. Unless you get a grasp on the full extent of his rejection by his father, you never can get a grasp on his full acceptance of you. You see, everything he does at the table that night is a picture of what he'll do on the cross. And everything he does on the cross is to secure your full acceptance to a father who rejected him so that the father might accept you. And his acceptance is forever. When God the Father rejected Jesus, his son, he poured on him every single ounce of his wrath. Nothing was left unspent. And the reason that there is nothing that you and I can do to diminish God's love for us is because Jesus loved us all the way to the end. All the way to the end of his Father's wrath. And so he says, love one another as I've loved you. How is that possible? It's possible because He has filled up your reservoir. It's always full. Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus never said, preach like me? He never said, heal like me? He said, love like me. Love like I love. Expecting nothing in return. In fact, expecting nothing in return except for betrayal and denial. Love like me, expecting nothing in return because true love doesn't need anything in return because it's already gotten everything we need. The total and complete acceptance by a God who can never reject you and never betray you because he's already done that On his son. He proves it on the cross. You and I are accepted because he was rejected. Not primarily by men, but primarily by God himself. There is one time in human history when the Godhead was divided, when the Son of God was cursed, when His Father turned His back on His Son, and that's the cross.
If you ever doubt your standing with God through Jesus Christ, it's because you're looking at yourself instead of him. You and I are accepted because he was rejected, not just by men. If that's all the rejection he knew, it's not enough. We're accepted because he was rejected by God himself. It never got any worse for him than that. It never gets any better for you than that. Everything you need to love and to live, you find at the cross. And so he washed their feet this night. We go to the table this night to remember all that Jesus has done and to revel in it. Let's pray. Father, you tell us in your word, through Jesus your Son, that sometimes a good man might lay down his life for a friend. Yet you laid down the life of your Son for enemies like us. To imagine that you planned this before you created a thing to demonstrate your glory, to redeem a bride for your son, the Lord Jesus, to have us caught up in the love affair between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Lord, if we're honest, we all can say here we had, have no idea the depth of what Jesus did for us. We will never comprehend the extent of his rejection until we are with him and we will know all things. But Father, I ask as we come to your table tonight, as we reflect upon what Jesus did on that cross in less than 24 hours, I pray that you would give us a real keen sense of his rejection. A real keen sense of all the wrath that you poured out on him. And so when we sin, we might run to him. Not because we have to but because we want to. 
and that we might be able to love without expecting anything in return because we don't need anything else. We ask you to set these elements apart from a common to a sacred purpose, that as we eat and drink these elements, we might remember everything that the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus means, not just for us, but for others. We ask you to do it tonight in a profound way. We pray for the one who's next to us, that you would have your way in them too, that they might bathe in your love and your acceptance and run to Jesus. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.